I think once you're an operator through so many cycles uh, and have seen everything, you know, the good, the bad, the worse, um, you know, uh, you kind of, I think, naturally evolve into like kind of a, a player coach type of role where, you know, you can put some capital behind um, a founder, which is, you know, that's probably the smallest part of our job, um, but really, you know, work with them to realize their potential. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. This week, I chat with Nihal Mehta, co-founder of NEAC Ventures. NEAC is a successful seed venture firm that has made dozens and dozens of investments, including unicorns like Airbnb and Boxed. Nahal knows his stuff. He's been a serial founder for a very long time and has now been an active investor for over a decade. In addition to ENIAC, Nahal has also started a few different organizations focused on social equity, one of them being the 100K Pledge. The 100K Pledge is a website that holds people accountable when they make public pledges to help fight injustice. The site keeps tabs on what people actually do to help the cause. As Nahal says, it's the Fitbit for justice. I always love catching up with him because he's really on point and has great insights. We discuss ENIAC Ventures, the startup scene in India, and much, much more. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Thunder. Thunder is a platform that is democratizing access to capital. The company believes fundraising should be about who you are and what you've built, not just about who you know. Founders can create a free account and add their company information and then match with relevant investors. Investors can create free profiles and provide their investment criteria, ensuring that they only receive relevant deal flow. By utilizing a double opt-in matching protocol, Thunder avoids the spam, only connecting investors and entrepreneurs that should be introduced. Visit thunder.vc to create your free account while the company is in beta. Thanks for being here, man. Great to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Dude, awesome. Um, so to start off, do you mind giving us a quick overview of your background? Yeah. Uh, I started... Um, I was born on a wintry day and no, I won't go all the <laughs> way back. Um, uh, but I was born in Iowa, which is a whole nother story. Um, uh, basically a serial founder, uh, turned venture capitalist, um, high level started five startups. Um, a bunch of those failed. Uh, some of them succeeded. Um, but have the scar tissue and muscle memory to, to, to prove it and started angel investing and found uh, three other really good friends from college that were pretty much doing the same thing. And we decided to form a firm together, uh, which is ENIAC Ventures. And we started about 12 years ago. And so we're on our, on our fifth fund now. Um, and, uh, you know, I still think of myself as an, I think we all do think of ourselves as entrepreneur and founder first, you know, not, uh, not investor first. Yeah, I think even running a firm, it feels like an entrepreneurial endeavor. I know the, the product might be moving capital, but it's still all the same, a lot of the same considerations. Absolutely. Um, so why did you switch from being an active founder to a VC? 
It's a common switch, but there's something in the DNA of that. What was the, yeah. what was the thinking? You know what's weird? Actually, when people say VC, I, I still get, like, it still triggers me. Like, uh, you know, as a founder, VCs are, you know, we were kind of programmed to think of them as like vulture capitalists, you know, uh, and that they would really, uh, you know, fuck up your business, essentially, and like fire you as CEO at some point, you know, and steal all your equity. Uh, many of which, by the way, are true uh not an idiot right um but um you know i never wanted to be really growing up a vc i think it was just a natural progression of of my career um i think once you're an operator through so many cycles uh and have seen everything you know the good the bad the worse um you know uh you kind of i think naturally evolve into like kind of a, a player coach type of role where you know you can put some capital behind um a founder which is you know that's probably the smallest part of our job um but really you know work with them to realize their potential and i think you know that's um that's what i I kind of naturally evolved into you know um i think i was very lucky to find again three other folks that um were at the same place in their lives and their careers with similar ambitions. Um, but I don't think we would have dreamed in a million years that we'd have at this point in time, you know, fun five with obviously it's a function of, of, of the market, but with like this many unicorns and this stable of incredible founders and this type of brand, um, we just kind of fell into it. So I think a lot of people will be listening to this before they come in to pitch you. Right, or they know they got a meeting with you, they're going to hit Google, this is going to show up. Can you give us an overview of the firm? How do you think about ENIAC? What do you want people to know when they walk in the door? Yeah, you know, we are um, generalist seed investors. Um, I think the, the one takeaway is uh, we are pre-product market fit. And so we work really hard with the founders we back to get the companies through product market fit and then raise the series a then we're usually coming off the board at the a um so we're laser focused on that you know c to a stage right and we've done this so many times right we have over 150 reps within ENIAC, uh and of course outside of that our angel and our own companies but uh we have so many reps that we think we're, we've become experts at it and so i think the results speak for themselves in terms of very high conversion rate from c to a um you know now also a strong signal for the kind of the a community uh and everything else that comes along with it but that product market fit stage is you know it's it's uh, getting through it is is ugly it's nasty you know it's uh every founder knows um you throw a million things at the wall and nothing sticks you do it again nothing sticks do it again one sticks you know then you pivot do it again nothing sticks uh rinse repeat um but um we love it you know that's where we have fun so a lot of it is product distribution um you know recruiting um pr uh you know helping uh business development sales doing a ton of sales straight customer sales lead gen uh for sales and then um you know raising the next round so it's kind of like most of our founders call us, you know, their co-founder, you know, without the 
title and the equity. Um, so that, you know, that's ENIAC. We're not really focused on specific sectors. Um, you know, we started really focused on the mobile software space 10 years ago because that's where we built our companies. But I think now, um, you know, we're, we're generalists. So we love consumer, we love enterprise, we love dev tools, we love frontier tech. You know, I just sent a term sheet for um, kind of a, a disruptor to, to TJ Maxx, like literally like an apparel commerce company for Gen Z. So that's not, you Did, know. Didn't see that coming, yeah. right? Didn't see that coming. But, you know, we happen to know this founder for over a decade and we know that this is his life's work and we had to get smart in the space, you know, but we're backing, we're backing founders that are, um, you know, really aligned with their purpose. And, um, uh, you know, that can be in any, in any category. Um, and they believe they're changing the world, uh, in that particular niche. And if we're convinced of that, then let's go. So are you, um, is that your main thing you guys are focusing on when you're making a decision? I mean, obviously everyone wants it all, market size, competitive positioning. Is it really a team bet for you guys? Yeah, I'd say it's 90% team. You know, because the market and the product uh, are functions of the team. You know, a good team will go after a big market. Um, so it's really all about the team. And so now I think we have the luxury to back a lot more repeat founders um in and out of our portfolio so repeat eniac founders we can do all day long because we've already developed uh, a history working history with them uh, and we know their strengths and weaknesses um uh we also love repeat founders outside of eniac that we've been tracking you know for a while and especially repeat founders that maybe have failed before uh ideally have failed before or tasted a small amount of success before so they have a chip on their shoulder. They're highly motivated. They can see around corners. They're not making the same mistakes. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's all about the team. And by the way, don't you know? Don't get me wrong. A ton of uh, companies we back are first time founders as well. You know that have proven to us that uh, that this is their purpose. You know, on the planet, and um, and uh, and we're convinced that you know when you shoot for the stars, you. And fail, you still can land on the moon, but that their trajectory is such that um, they're really shooting for the stars. You went through before a lot of the ways in which you help founders, and I think that speaks to your experience. With all the volume of companies that you guys are backing, how do you do that? How do you operationalize kind of the support that founders need? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we. There's a few different things that um, that we do. I think you know if you kind of unpack some of the things I threw out there. You know, mm -hmm. PR is one of the things I threw out there. We recently brought on uh, this year um, as our VP of content uh, a gentleman by the name of Anthony Ha, who was at TechCrunch um, for 12 years actually, and so he is consulting with our portfolio on PR strategy. Right. Um, and, um, you know, we're even like producing videos with founders on with special announcements and uh, introducing them to reporters who will break the news. And 
so on and so forth. So I think that, you know, those are some of the ways. Um, I think one of our secret weapons is also our, our network. Um, we're actually going to be launching it, relaunching it later this year. And what that is, is essentially um, a little bit under 500 um, pretty senior level folks at uh, very large brands. Um, you know, think of this as Fortune 5000 companies um, and uh, also, you know, a lot of the new guard in tech as well, right? So somebody senior at Coinbase, somebody senior at Plaid, um, you know, somebody senior at Dapper Labs, somebody senior at, um, you know, Twilio, what have you, um, to really help accelerate you know, the biz dev and sales trajectories and corp dev trajectories of our portfolio. And, um, uh, you know, that's kind of institutionalized. So like when we interact with a mm -hmm. portfolio company, um, you know, one is they can see kind of the network and access them. Um, but we're constantly making connections, you know, and creating liquidity. I think a, a KPI for us is like number of intros kind of per day, you know, in and out of portfolio. Um, and it's now in the, you know, well into the double digits per day. But I think just that connectivity amongst the network is, I think, one of our secret sauces. I remember as a founder, that was the one thing I really that I wanted from my investor is, you know, fine, give me some feedback, find some moral support, fine. But like, show me the money, like, obviously, wrote me a check, but like, give me some customers, you know, like, make me an introduction to a buyer mm -hmm. and actually help me close the deal. Um, because, you know, uh, that's going to help me get through product market fit. And that's really going to help me uh, grow my business. And so, um, uh, you know, so anyway, those are two examples uh, from the PR perspective and the, you know, biz dev sales perspective. We had a, a reporter on recently onto the, the podcast um, who gave us some coaching on PR. So it's funny you mentioned that. Um, the, your new hire who comes from the industry, any any big insights or takeaways that you think would help founders? Something that he's taught you or you knew before that's like a hot tip for PR? Yeah. Um, well, one is like, um, especially these days with like all the crazy funding announcements, don't just assume that like your seed round will get announced, you know, because it, it probably won't, you know. Um, it, you're going to need some hook. Um, we recently, uh, tried to pitch a seed round and most of the reporters turned it down. And actually one reporter said, uh, we offered it up. We said, listen, would it be interesting to see a little bit of the, um, the sausage making, like how we raised the round. And she mm. was like, yeah, that's super interesting. Like, would you be willing to even share your pitch deck? And so like, that was the hook for this seed announcement, right. That will be coming out, um, sometime this fall uh which is you know yes this company raised some money here's how they did it and so right. um i think especially now with this type of velocity in the market uh don't expect that you know your announcements will uh will will, will garner any type of response from the press um the other thing is don't do not fucking do a a web wire do not do this like you know the standard pr media wire that costs 50 bucks and you do a press release and you send it out. Uh, and then you think that one, you think that all the reporters are going to read it and wow, 
give you a call and want to write about it. <laughs> one, that doesn't happen. Two, it actually bites you in the ass because um, once it's out there and it's public and it's searchable on Google, uh, actually no reporter will want to write about it, right? Because they're like, oh, the news is already out there, right? So like right. that web wire, it's crazy. Entrepreneurs still do that because it's cheap and maybe their PR agency is like, let's do it. Maybe because their PR agency is too lazy to like actually like introduce them to a reporter uh and offer them an exclusive um but anyway that you know those are a couple kind of pr tips that are still um uh very relevant you know today yeah it's helpful I, i've always thought your firm has done a pretty good job with the pr stuff uh which is not easy so glad you're able thanks. to share some thanks well that. two of the four partners yeah. uh myself included were former uh like nightclub promoters you know so like we huh. have we, uh, you know, we used to hawk kind of paper flyers on the streets to get people to parties. So I think we have a little bit of that DNA. Was, was that college or post-college or when were you guys doing that? Yeah, college, post-college, now. Tell me, tell me it was like <laughs> after Fun 4. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, no, we stopped probably, uh, promoting parties, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago. But like that's still part of our ethos, you know, college, right. after college for sure. Um, but you know, it's marketing, right? And I think marketing is, I think there's so much, we call it the sizzle steak ratio. Um, there's so much amazing stuff, um, that founders are doing and, uh, and the companies they're building, but it's not commensurate with, um, what they're publishing to the world to like make the world aware of what they're doing, right? There's something asymmetric of, the actual work and the building and like the, 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 the media and the awareness of what they're building because the founders that are building uh, back to the sizzle steak ratio are like all steak, you know, they're like, you know, double MIT or whatever, but they're like heads down um, and they're building, they're building amazing, great things, but they don't have, um, uh, you know, the sizzle quotient to like get it out to the world. And I think to be successful, you need a little bit of both, you know, definitely more steak than sizzle. Um, you don't want more sizzle than steak, but, uh, I think you need both, you know, to, to really do something interesting and make the world aware that you're doing something interesting. Let me take a different direction here for a second. Look, I've known Vic on your team for a long time and I know you guys were all buddies at Penn. There's a lot of founders out there that are working with their friends. What have you learned about that dynamic over time? How do you manage that? It's probably better and worse. What have you taken away from that? Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely something we've been working on um, professionally. So yeah, we've been friends for over two decades. You know, um, we have an incredible personal relationship. You know, we're best men at each other's weddings and godfathers to each other's children. <laughs> Um, and, um, you know, I think, uh, when we started working professionally, we had to really, uh, we actually got a coach to help us incrementally work better professionally and realize like as a firm, you know, we wanted the parts, um, of the firm to like, you know, add up to obviously greater than some of the parts. And, um, uh, I think this coach really helped us in the beginning identify that, identify kind of each of our superpowers. Um, 
so that we know which kind of partner and superpowers to lead with in certain situations and also have that mutual respect for each other's superpowers. And we, we you know, we definitely have that now, but it, it definitely takes a lot of um, time and energy and effort. Um, I don't think we would have gotten to a really good working professional relationship without a coach, you know? Um, um, and I think we're very lucky to have been friends before we started working together because I think when a lot of people start working together and then try to become friends, it's definitely a different dynamic, right? Because, yeah. um, you know, obviously the professional is trumping the friendship versus the other way around. So when you're like hanging out with somebody as friends, you can't help to like, you know, uh, like think about them in the context of work and maybe some, you know, maybe something that they could be doing better or something that, um, you know, you, you want to give them constructive feedback. It's hard for you to do that, you know, versus like being in the friend, solid friend zone and being able to be very candid and honest and open with somebody. So I think it's easier TLDR, it's easier to go from from friends first to co-founders than it is, you know, from co-founders to friends. I think this coaching bit you mentioned is a big deal. And I, maybe it's literally Billions has popularized it and made mm. it, put, on, put it out there. We have a coach on our team that a lot of different folks use at different times, and it's been invaluable. Uh, and Venwai is one of, the, one of the companies we're involved with is it constantly introducing founders to coaches and that's become a thing. Like there's, there's so many executives out there that are getting help now. Um, I think it used to be taboo cause it was too closely associated with, uh, therapy, which I don't think should be taboo at all. Uh, but it seems like people are grabbing onto it and you know, there's a lot of people who have talked for a long time about mental health of founders and relationships. Um, I'm glad to see it's kind of professionalizing and people are kind of getting it integrated. Is it something yeah. you encourage your your founders to do? Do you ever go oh, into founding sure. teams early stage? And for sure, actually, one of our best companies ended up hiring a coach for everybody at the company, VP and higher, uh, and it's made a dramatic difference in the performance of that company. Um, that because sense. I think, especially first time founders, first time executives, um, you know, they don't know what they don't know. They and so like having somebody that can really guide them and teach them and provide that feedback to them on a one-on-one -on -one, um, level is incredibly powerful. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, uh, we encourage that. Uh, you know, it's interesting as an investor, VC, um, again, every time I say VC, I cringe a little bit. Um, yeah. uh, I say as a seed investor, especially our number one job is kind of that of a, of a therapist. You know, I was talking about getting companies through product market fit but it's also like just like just being there to like talk people off ledges and like you know if you look at my sms you know my wife's like who's calling you at like two in the morning I'm like it, it's a founder <laughs> like don't like don't worry about right. it um uh, right. and uh yeah. yeah and but but that's it it's and by the way it's nine times out of ten it's just being a listening board it's not even really offering any feedback um, or suggestions. It's just somebody to listen to. I think being a founder is an incredibly lonely uh, job, you know, where you are constantly stressed, um, you are insecure, um, you're being um, 
you know, crushed from all directions, you know, um, and you're the only one feeling those forces. Um, right. And so, so I think, you know, uh, anyway, that, so yeah, a big believer in coaches and therapists and uh, one-on-one, um, you know, additional resources kind of outside of your, you know, immediate circle. Yeah, it's such a weird role as a founder because there's a filter for every conversation you have. Mm-hmm. Except if you can get to a coach or somebody who you can over time become kind of give it unvarnished. You, yeah, or, or spinning like stuff founders, your talking, board. founders talking to each other, you know? Um, yeah. uh, and so founders having that network, like CEOs and CEOs talking, is really important. I think there's a lot of good networks yeah. out there. Um, that that already exists you know on that on that level on that level but um but yeah the founders should always have other founders i know for eniac we have like a founder slack and um Mm -hmm. it's pretty incredible what comes out of that you know founders just post some random stuff and then they'll get like dozens of responses that they didn't expect that's powerful so i I've, i've done a little digging on you before this conversation and I've, I've known about ENIAC, the, well, it's not that exciting, don't worry. Nothing, not going to burn mm-hmm. you here. Um, on your LinkedIn, you've also mentioned that you're involved with the India Internet Group. You might have given an overview on that. You've got a pretty prolific spread of activities. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to cover some of them. Totally. So actually, when we started ENIAC, interestingly enough, um, our, our, one of our first investors um, who actually anchored ENIAC was very interested when our first LPs was very interested in um, in investing in India, and so we started in two thousand eight um, this India Internet Fund, um, and actually the person that runs it is in India. Uh, in Delhi, has been there since, and actually ENIAC One and India Internet Fund One were very similar in size and and vintage, and interestingly enough, like. ENIAC now is, you know, on its fifth fund and we've had, you know, back to 150 companies and we've had 45 exits. And I mentioned, you know, now double digit unicorn, um, uh, India internet fund still on fund one, you know, and, and there's a few series A's, maybe one B, um, but nowhere, you know, the same kind of momentum that's in the United States ecosystem. Um, and obviously our ability to like, also have four partners at ENIAC and all very well networked and working hard at the U.S. ecosystem. So this is something we started back then, and now we're just, con- you know, um, um, you know, not involved. It's really my partner in India that's maintaining the companies. Um, but we started mm-hmm. it at the same time, um, which uh, it's just kind of an interesting analogy, like the the difference in the markets. It does feel like the Indian market is. Scaling, no. The outside read on it is it's getting increasingly hot. What's missing? Is it missing liquidity path, or what's the missing ingredient in their ecosystem? Yeah, I think uh, I think there's a lot of things. So, um, yes, it is scaling now for sure. Um, you know, I think people read India as kind of in between China and the U.S. Not in terms of geography, but in terms of uh, regulations. Um, from the government and actual friction from the government. So while it is a democracy, um, you know, the government is still controlling a lot of things um, that make it very hard mm. for startups to break out, you know? 
And I think that's one of the big reasons why we haven't had, you know, so much success uh, in, in, in within India tech. It's changing for sure. Um, I think the other thing is like the culture of American entrepreneurial entrepreneurship is um, top of the world, is world-class, you know, where you can have, you know, somebody that literally comes from nothing and become Elon Musk, you know, and become, you know, Jeff Bezos and become et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, Sundar Pichai, the, the CEO of Google, um, you know, these incredible, and we have so many in our portfolio, right? Um, and I, I think um, that chip on the shoulder is is so unique to the American ecosystem um, that um, is not afforded elsewhere. You know, um, you, you don't hear like a Chinese immigrant story or an Indi Indian immigrant story to India or to China, you know, um, that kind of makes it big, right? So anyway, I, I think there's a number of reasons we could have, uh, you know, conversation for many hours on why but i think i think those are the two big reasons i think is the culture and and uh and government regs yeah the government reg is this is the second time this week i've heard of it and you know the story of the chinese restriction narrative we actually just had someone on the pod to talk about that in depth and it was very interesting um is one that's been told in america i feel like it's it's news to me uh, that the Indian government of democracy ha is limiting. How, what are they doing over there that needs to be switched? Are there a couple of policies that are completely wacky? Like, what's happening? Well, I mean, I'll give you some examples. Like, you know, a lot of people are not happy with the prime minister um, for a number of reasons. You know, besides him rallying with Trump, you know, and besides him, by the way, uh, literally, you know, maybe single-handedly spreading delta you know flaring delta in uh last fall when uh due to um the elections which by the way he lost uh he had rallies without masks with millions of people that was kind of like the big inflection point for delta growing in india um um but besides all of that um i mean a lot of the stuff right like um i mean recently read uh india has made it illegal for you to change uh religion uh after marriage so literally the the religious the religious tolerance i think is under modi is um you know is, is becoming i think a, a a real a real issue uh i don't think people are as free as you know as they want to be um and so anyway i think you know there's some good things about him you know he's a arguably a good businessman um but um you know i think in terms of other things like optically like muslim sentiment um you know india basically took over kashmir um and uh you know escalated that uh war and by the way killed you know and displaced you know thousands of people um so anyway you know again we could talk about this for hours but um you know i i don't think that uh i think a lot of things that are going on in that country are i mean listen uh we had trump for four years so um 
uh, you know, thank goodness he did not get reelected here. But you know, you know, this this can happen in any democracy, right? That's what a democracy is. Um, and I think India is just on the, you know, the flip side of that, and hopefully that will change in the next election. Fingers crossed. Now, I've also this is kind of on topic and. You know, I've always known you to be pretty much a significant social activist, right? Uh, when your VC hat's not on, um, doing things of significant merit and impact. Um, I know your wife is also on that tra- on that trajectory as well. W- what's the cause you're most passionate about? What what gets you out of bed outside of doing your job and taking care of your family? Yeah, I think high level it's just fighting for the uh, underdog. You know. Um, and if there's social injustice anywhere, it means that the little guys, you know, little guys getting fucked. Little guy needs help, you know, whoever that is, by the way. Um, and so I think it's more uh, helping, leveraging our skills, whatever we can do. You know, a lot of it is is digital activism, um, whether that's, you know, writing or tweeting or organizing. Um, fundraising, um, you know, things that we can leverage our skills to move the needle on. Um, that's it. But fighting for the underdogs, I mean, you know, uh, my wife is doing incredible work. I'm just like a tiny part of the shadow of activism in this household. But, you know, she started this nonprofit Girls Who Code uh, 10 years ago. And the underdog there were, you know, girls that were essentially um, not getting the computer science skills that they needed, you know, to compete in the 21st century. And so um, she saw the problem, you know, and created a incredible nonprofit. And now close to half a million girls have computer science education, you know, uh, half of which, by the way, are at or below the poverty line. And so that's, that's transformational awesome. to them, uh, to their families and to their neighborhoods from a socioeconomic perspective as well. Um, and her next cause is now fighting for moms. Uh, she saw a lot of injustice kind of uh, in the pandemic in particular, where a lot of moms had to leave the workforce to come home, take care of the household. And she feels like they need to get compensated for that opportunity cost. And so she's fighting now for equality um, and for paid equity uh, for moms. That's called the Marshall Plan uh, for moms. And so... Um, you know, anyway, uh, you know, that's her, I think, uh, for me, I'm just kind of providing air cover, you know, like, like, like re- retweeting, <laughs> re- you know, re- retweeting her articles. Uh, okay. But were you, were you an activist type before you got married or was that, um, was it, was it already in your DNA and that's how you guys paired up or was it something that she brought to the table and you acclimated? Yeah, I think I was always like a, you know, the, a marketer, a promoter, and also kind of like, you know, realizing what good causes are and trying to amplify them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, uh, well, it's interesting, actually, my wife and I met at a Barack Obama fundraiser That's uh, what I'm she, saying. in, in, right? in you... 2008. Uh, she was throwing the fundraiser for the president and I was DJing the fundraiser. Um, and actually, <laughs> like, like, literally, that's how we met. And it's funny because President Obama will say, like, he, he introduced us. I mean, in the way he did, you know, and so, um, but I think, um, 
I became a lot more active, you know, a- after meeting her, for sure. Uh, I don't think I was taking on causes, um, you know, certainly, by, you know, by myself before. So I think, she, you know, she definitely brought me into that, into that world, um, you know, and, and our kids too. I mean, I remember we brought Sean when he was, you know, two years old, maybe, uh, to the women's march, you know, <laughs> like, like millions of people in, uh, you know, on an independence mall, like suffocating. And I was like carrying this little boy with like a pink hat, I had a pink hat. I was like, this is awesome, you know? But yeah, I would definitely not have been there had our wife not inspired us. Um, right. So, you know. Okay. Yeah. But you're, but you're doing stuff now. You want to tell us a little bit about the 100K pledge? Yeah, sure. So this was last summer, actually, after George Floyd. Um, uh, actually, two other college buddies uh, and I got together and said, you know, listen, there's a lot of people making pledges. And we've seen this kind of all the way back to Rodney King and Trayvon Martin. And, you know, a lot of it, unfortunately, ends up being like lip service. Like people give pledges, they say things and it's a blip. And kind of we forget about it, especially with these types of media cycles these days. Um, And so we want to kind of keep people honest and accountable with these pledges. And so anytime somebody made a public pledge, we would record it and we put it on this website, the 100K pledge. Um, and, um, we also wanted to facilitate people to create their own pledges, you know, essentially for, you know, the economic empowerment of the black community. And, um, you can go to the website now, the hundred K pledge.com and, uh, create a pledge and pledge to, you know, invest, pledge to donate, um, in, black communities you can specify what you want to do or keep it broad um and it's essentially you know a hundred thousand dollars that you will pledge over the next 10 years and we will track it and you can actually see we just rolled out a progress tracker um you know there's very large corporations that pledged billions of dollars i think we're tracking close to 40 billion now um and we put them on there and you know their pr teams are reaching out to us like take us off, take us off. We're like, no, tell us what you've done. Like, tell us like of this, right. like 2 billion that you pledged, like send us updates so we can update your tracker. Cause this is like a public, um, essentially, you know, uh, my co-founder on this, my buddy VJ calls it like the Fitbit for justice. It's a, it's a public or maybe the, <laughs> okay. whoop, the whoop, the whoop for justice is probably a better analogy now. Um, where, um, you know, everybody can see it is completely transparent. And I think that, you know, that's what we were frustrated about is all these pledges, all this lip service that was being created, and there was no accountability behind it. So yeah, this mm-hmm. website's up, we paid for the domain for 10 years, we paid for Google Cloud for 10 years, like, it's here, we're going to update every pledge uh, as it comes through. And, uh, you know, we're not going to call people out, but the public can see like, who's uh, living up to their promises and who, who you know, who isn't. So, you know, that was a very simple kind of digital um, site. We built it in a weekend. We pushed it out um, that we thought could really move the needle, you know, post-George Floyd. And uh, a lot of people think that that it has. Um, another example also after the pandemic hit was we launched a site also in, in just 48 hours 
called healthmainstreet.com, we realized a lot of our favorite restaurants, um, you know, were getting crushed. And um, the best kind of way to help them after some research that we did was kind of a no interest loan, which was essentially buying gift cards from the restaurant, right? So the money goes straight into the bank accounts of the restaurateurs uh, and the owners of, of those establishments. And so uh, there is no gift card aggregator online. You know, gift cards are inc incredibly mm -hmm. fragmented. Um, you know, you have some with Square, you have some with 20 other providers. Um, and so we just aggregated them all and put them on a website. And we're still able to help folks find their favorite restaurant and have them buy gift cards every day. Um, and we ended up doing that with this great company in New York called Lunchbox. Um, but yeah, that, that was something, again, that we just saw that there was a need for and um, executed pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, and also bought that domain for 10 years and Google Cloud for 10 years. So these are kind of like t timeless, you know, projects that, you know, small kind of uh, effort, great ROI, you know, in terms right. of something you can create, produce and get, get out to the world and, um, you know, get a few reporters talking about it and, you know, the traffic starts coming. Well, it sounds like high level. You, look, you've accomplished a lot. You built a great fund. You're having some social impact. You've got your family going. Um, where do you see yourself heading in the next 10 years? Where does this go? Yeah, it's a good time to announce that, uh, that we're, we're retiring. You know, I think there's a lot of VCs that you heard in, uh, the last week that hanging up their Jersey, we're, uh, we're getting out of the game. You know, we're getting old. We can't really see hard to read emails. That's it. <laughs> You're being sarcastic. Up, I think you are <laughs> hanging, hanging, hanging up our, our laptops. Um, uh, no, listen, we're having the time of our lives right now. I think, feel like we're just getting in, we're just getting into it, you know, um, 10 years from now, I want to be doing the same thing, you know? Yeah. More of the same. Yeah. 20 years from now, more of the same as well. I mean, I think we want ENIAC to be, to live, to outlive us. Um, you know, I think we've got, you know, a bunch more funds before we start thinking about that. Um, the world has changed, you know, post COVID and also with web three, you know, as exciting as it was to invest in mobile 10 years ago, it is to invest in crypto and climate and Gen Z today, more exciting probably today. Um, so, uh, more of the same, you know, if we can, uh, continue to help founders realize their purpose um and if we can have you know some sort of impact on the world and doing it you know through uh you know our values and our mission on other projects um and by the way where they where they merge even better you know we're investing in a lot of companies that are also incredibly mission driven uh, or have incredible values. Um, and so that, you know, that's the ultimate kind of holy grail when, when, when all your worlds converge. But, um, yeah, listen, continue, uh, doing good and, um, and, uh, and helping people, you know, realize their potential. 
I'll leave off here with one last question. You've had um, a lot of experience on both sides of this game as operator and investor. What's one lesson that maybe people don't hear every day that's not cliche that you wish more entrepreneurs knew that would be helpful to folks? Yeah, good question. Um, listen, my first startup went bankrupt. Um, and at the time, it was uh, a completely humbling and humiliating experience. Um, being, you know, son of an Indian immigrant at the Diwali parties, those aunties in the corner were like, that kid filed for bankruptcy, you know, and it was embarrassing. And, uh, you know, it took me a while to bounce back from that experience. Looking back, that was the best experience of my life because I think when you face failure and come out of it, um, you just come out of it with this incredible invincibility and resilience, um, where everything is upside, you know, like literally the worst thing that could happen to you in business already happened. And I'm not afraid of that anymore. Like I took the fear off the table and so let's go. And so I think the advice would be, you know, fail fast, um, you know, do something that, um, you're afraid of doing and fail at it, um, and get back up. It'll take you some time shake it off it'll take you some time get back out there you know your body your subconscious your muscles have muscle memory you'll avoid the same mistakes um and you'll do a lot bigger and better the next time around so fail fast but putting my eniac hat on fail fast uh not on our dime <laughs> fail fast <laughs> fail fast else's career money. <laughs> somebody else's money and then the next go around we'll back you that's awesome thank you for being on today thanks for having me man it's great to see you as always it's great catching up in the hall if you liked what you heard please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend you can find me on twitter at mpd and to hear more of my conversations with innovators subscribe on youtube facebook or any major podcast platform just search for innovation with mark peter davis (laughs) 